series of nine programmes called Fiction at the Friary and on Campus. Recorded on location in UCC and at the Friary Bar in Cork City. We're now standing outside the Boo Library. The Boo Library was built on the site of the former university sports pitch known as the Quarry. Designed by architects Murray Murray Pettit and built on the site of a quarry from which the limestone of the main quadrangle was constructed, the Boo Library forms an interesting contrast to the adjacent 19th and early 20th century buildings. It was constructed using contemporary engineering advancements seen particularly in the banded glazing with overhanging walls. The library is named after George Boole, who was the first professor of mathematics at Queen's College Cork from 1849 to 1854. Boole developed a new branch of maths in variant theory and is probably best remembered today for his theory of logic, Boolean algebra, which represents a fundamental step in the design of computers. The Boo Library at University College Cork campus contains the majority of the university's archives. It has libraries on five floors. The aim of the library is to provide high quality information resources for the demand of the university and the wider academic community. It facilitates international level of third level education and protects the cultural history of the area. The Boo Library is also the home of the Great Book of Ireland which housed in the Special Collections Library is a gallery and anthology of modern Irish art and poetry, which was a project which began in 1989. Acquired by UCC in 2013, the book is a huge volume of 250 pages, bringing together the work of 121 artists, 143 poets and nine composers who painted, drew and wrote directly onto the vellum. The book contains work from poets and writers including Theo Dorgan, Patrick Galvin, Seamus Heaney, Mary O'Donnell and contains the last piece of prose written by Samuel Beckett. Uh, my name is Ema Ryan and at the moment we're in the creative zone uh, on the ground floor of the Boole Library in UCC. And could you tell us how UCC has found its way into your own writing, whether it's into your own work or your writing process in any way? Um, I started working in UCC in February 2018 and straight away I was just blown away by the beauty of the campus. I didn't go here myself. Um, I went to college in Dublin, um, but I just loved kind of wandering around on my, my breaks. And I started coming to the library during my lunch hour, either to read or to write. And I just found it like such a refuge from, let's say, the busy campus, you know. Um, and it's always so quiet in here and peaceful. And I got lots of writing done here um, over the last two years. So it's been great. Can you remember particular stories or novels that you worked on during your times in the Boo Library? Absolutely, yeah. I was... Um, revising a novel um, and I did a lot of that work here um, up on the third floor and you get a great view of the quad and a great view of the, the area in front of the student centre but yeah it was it was just a lovely spot to, to, to read and write and revise. 
And is having that routine where you perhaps go in on your lunch break every day, is that important to you in terms of writing process? Absolutely, yeah. I find that you just have to carve out those pockets of time that are almost sacrosanct, you know. So I get up in the morning and I do an hour before work and then I do an hour over lunch and that those are my two writing times during the day um, and then in the evening I just try and unwind and, and read and cook and watch TV and just, you know, relax basically. Because um, I find particularly with writing and when you're also working a full-time job, it's very easy for writing to kind of take over your life in a way and you have to almost be quite disciplined to just have those those hours where you do it and then also assign time to unwind as well. And Ima, you're not from Cork originally, but you moved here for various reasons. That's right. And I'm wondering, how do you feel about Cork as a literary city? Do you find it's um, a good place to live in as a writer? Absolutely, yeah. I'm from Tipperary originally, I'm from the country, and I went to Dublin for college and lived there for, I think, about nine years. Um, and I love Dublin, like... like all the book launches, all the bookshops, you know, it seems like there's a lot happening in Dublin. But one of the things that sold me on Cork originally was I came down during the Short Story Festival. Um, and I just, it was it was such a vibrant festival and there were so many amazing writers around and there was also such a good buzz in the city um, during the festival. Um, and I feel like there's a number of those kind of festivals that happen in Cork, like the, the Midsummer Festival, the Spring Poetry Festival, uh, the Winter Warmer. Um, so there's always something happening in, on the literary scene. Um, and like there's Old Vale, there's Fiction at the Friary, like there's just so many outlets, I think, for, for writers and readers. Can I ask you, do you have any stories or, or is your novel set partly in Cork? It's funny, actually, because the, um, the novel was originally set in Trinity. The main character is a, a student, she's 20, and... Um, I, I was writing it about Trinity because that's where I did my creative writing masters a couple of years ago um, but the more time I spent in Cork and the more I worked on the novel in the UCC the more the campus started to morph into the UCC campus as opposed to the Trinity campus um, and I had been calling it Trinity in the novel and then I slowly kind of um, removed all the references to Trinity and it just became the university <laughs> so it's kind of a strange hybrid of Trinity and UCC I think that has made its way into the novel Eimear, I just wanted to ask you about um, the role of music in your work because um, I, I remember some of your short stories certainly have the piano. Yeah, I did play music when I was a kid um, and I was never very talented at it. <laughs> so I think a lot of Oops. those feelings and frustrations are coming out in the story. Um, yeah, no, I tend to write about people who have talents that I wish I had, you know. Um, so I write, there's a musician in this character and then the main character in the novel that I'm working on is a swimmer and I'm a very poor swimmer. <laughs> but I just, I'd love to be better at it and I think writing about these things is almost a way of uh, acting out or um, fulfilling that wish, you know, to, to be better at these things, you know. I'd love to be a, a piano player as well, but uh, yeah, just never had the, never had the skill. The music in your work um, presumably informs the rhythm of your writing as well. I suppose, yeah. Um, yeah, I never thought about it that way, but there's definitely you're definitely going for a certain rhythm um, when you're writing, and you want it to sound just good on the ear, I suppose. You know, when it's read out, and um, but yeah, I never really made that connection before. 
uh, between music and writing directly. But. It's very interesting because the sports side of your um, career um, must help as well because sometimes writing a novel is like running a marathon <laughs> and yet you need the musicality as well in the sense that the words need to flow. So I, I imagine that hopefully you will feel the same that, that um, these uh, interact in your writing. Yeah, I suppose like sports is all about just repetition and doing the same thing over and over and over until it's like second nature. And I think, you know, writing is all about editing and rewriting and um, going, at, going, at, going at a draft again and again until it's right, you know, so they have that in common. The recital. It was one of those sleek, silvery wine bars Anonymous as an airport, the oversized glasses filled a third of the way. He's a nama, Tim would murmur in my ear as we tended bare. That lad there was before a tribunal. Tim knew everyone's scandal, had it boiled down to the absolutes. Grace, he'd say, the tax evader wants another gin and tonic. Sometimes I wished he'd keep his voice down. I couldn't help but like the clientele. It wasn't just that they tipped well. They had presence. A tragic, shop-soiled charisma. They told great stories. They'd been powerful men once. I'd drop my CV into the bar because of the piano that sat squat and dusty in the corner. I'd hoped they might hire me to play. When Tim offered bar work instead, I didn't hesitate. I needed a reason to get out of the house, away from my sister's reproachful looks. Not that Jen ever let up. Often when I got in from work, she would materialise in the darkened living room, warning me not to wake Ruan. Could you not get a different sort of job? One with more civilised hours? You know, something in an office. I thought of the early morning rush of girls in pencil skirts and chunky white runners stalking grimly to work, their heels in their handbags. No thanks. The piano, I soon learned, was little more than an expensive prop. I was forever running over to it with a cloth to wipe the sticky wine glass rings away. The bar was fine as a stopgap, a just job. And what are you doing at the moment, Grace? Oh, I'm just working in a bar for now. There was an unofficial free wine perk of which I made judicious use. And in slow moments, I watched the customers. There was a GAA commentator who had a different accent to the one he used on TV. There was a GAA commentator who had a different accent to the one he used on TV. There was a judge who sat at the bar in full judge rig out, her wig sitting neatly on her head like a vestigial brain. One regular, Liam, bounded in at the same hour each night, always in a suit, always slightly dishevelled. He was forever getting into arguments about funding. Tim explained, he's the local TD, Grace. Ah, you've heard of him. Used to be Justice Minister. Resigned in disgrace a few years ago. I shrugged, prompting Tim to sigh. God, you're young. I didn't care about politics, but I watched with interest as Liam dealt with his irate constituents. His accent betrayed his origins in the farming heartlands, and he was a good herder of words. When he made a point, it was like a bolt sliding home, neat and precise. He was a constant fidgeter and handled others with as much ease as he did himself. Women, of course. He was an expert at the hand to the small of the back, of the sincere hand clasp. But men, too, he touched warmly in conversation, 
a hand on the arm, on the shoulder, and they were easy with it, pleased even. He listened patiently to everyone's complaints, but invariably turned back to the bar, to me, with a dark grin and a generous rolling of the eyes. It turned out I was doing better than most of my former classmates. I wasn't on the dole, at least. As music composition graduates, we were not the most practical souls. We tended to be on the precious side. My classmates would emerge grinning from three straight hours piano practice, invoking the better-than-sex chestnut. My own relationship with the piano was less romantic. I treated it like a horse I was trying to break in. My father had always chastised me for that. Growing up, Jen had always been the better pianist. She'd made it. A successful stint with the National Symphony Orchestra. A score for a worldwide smash hit Irish dance show. Then she had Ruan and devoted herself to motherhood full time. She always insisted it was her choice, but I was skeptical. Ruan's father was on tour in Asia and there was no suggestion of him putting his career on hold. Our father had taught us both. We'd compete for space next to him on the piano bench. I'd stare mesmerized at his hands, at the curly gold hairs on his wrists. And I was a hesitant player from the start. Eyes up, he would say. Don't overthink it. Skip, skip, skip along. Dad never hinted at Jen's superiority and so made her determined to prove it over and over. It shouldn't have surprised me that she would shield her contacts jealously. I'll put in a good word for you, she'd say, if I get around to it. Then, when I reminded her, Jesus, I'm already putting you up. Would you not have a bit of patience? Other times, over wine. I'm just not sure you'd suit the National Symphony Orchestra. All that rigid discipline. You're a different sort of musician, Grace. At night, I lay on my back in the spare bedroom sometimes woken by Ruan's thready cries, Jen's awards shadowy on the shelves above. I resigned myself to teaching children in their living rooms as pushy parents hovered in the doorway. Andrea Carter grew up in Ballyfin, County Leash, and she studied law at Trinity College. She lived and worked in Inishon, County Donegal, running the most northerly solicitor's practice in the country before returning to Dublin to practice as a barrister. She's the author of The Inishon Mysteries, most recently Murder at Grey's Bridge and The Body Falls. The series is soon to be adapted for television. Her short story, The Lamb, was shortlisted for the Irish Book Awards in 2019. The Sunday Times has set up for work Carter excels in recreating the cloistered, gossipy confines of a small Irish village. The Inishowen Peninsula community, where everybody knows everybody else's business, is a fine stand-in for the mannered drawing room society of a Christie mystery. Inishowen is a place close to my own heart, and I'm very much looking forward to chatting to Andrea today. First, I'm going to ask her to read for us. Uh, thanks a million, Danielle, and thank you, Madeline, and thank you both for having me on. And I really hope to get to the friary at some stage and sit in the audience and eat jelly beans and enjoy whoever happens to be reading. So um, I'm going to read firstly from um, Murder at Grey's Bridge, which was the last book um, that was published in the Initial and Mystery series. 
And Margaret Gray's Bridge um, is sort of an homage to the big country house mystery. And it centers around a wedding taking place in an old creepy country house. Uh, and about half of the the um, uh, half of the action takes place in in the old country house, and then it moves to an island. Um, and so I'm going to read from um, a short way into the book. So this is the Friday night, the night before the wedding. And Ben O'Keefe, um, my protagonist, isn't feeling well, so she goes to bed earlier than everybody else. <clears throat> Other than some clearing up noises from the kitchen, the house was quiet. Standard lamps glowed here and there, and the light was dim and low as I made my way up the stairs. I dawdled, full of curiosity, feeling privileged to have the place to myself. I'd stopped to have a look at a portrait I hadn't noticed halfway up, drawn in by the stern expression of its subject. It was a woman with a high collar and a cameo brooch who looked as if she might have been a governess. Beside her were some other framed photographs, old, sepia, a sort of family gallery, I assumed. In one, a man and woman and two children stood stiffly in front of a house I recognised instantly as Gray's Bridge. I was wondering if these were Ian Gray's ancestors, if one of them was Louisa Gray herself, when a figure appeared at the top of the stairs. I shivered, then instantly told myself off for being silly enough to be spooked by a ghost story. I leaned silently into the wall, trying not to make the floorboards creak underfoot, but the figure, barefoot and in pyjamas, hadn't seen me. He was too busy concentrating on taking something from a side table and hurrying off. Though I couldn't see his face, I was sure it was Finn. I tiptoed the rest of the way up the stairs. When I reached where he had been, I saw that one of the little porcelain figurines I'd seen earlier was missing. There had been three and now there were only two. I was sure of it. But why would a teenager steal something like that, I wondered. He was gone, so I continued on to my room. On turning the key and pushing open the door, I noticed a strong, heavy scent that hadn't been there before. And when I turned on the light, I saw that a vase of blue hydrangeas had been placed on the dressing table. I wondered who had put them there. I found it hard to imagine who would have had the time the night before the wedding. The scent was a little overpowering and the air was warm, so I opened the window before picking up my wash bag and heading down the hall. The heavy oak door groaned as I opened it. The bathroom was large, with black and white tiles and a bath large enough to fit three people. A precarious looking shower, like a telephone box, looked as if it had been parachuted in in a panicked attempt to modernize. I knew which one I'd be using in the morning. I turned on the tap and waited for the ancient plumbing system to growl into life. Back in my room, I discovered that I'd left in such a rush that I'd forgotten to bring a book. So I took the girl's own annual I'd found earlier to bed, propping a pillow behind my head and flicking through the pages, careful to handle them as gently as I could, conscious that the book had survived a century already. I noticed some recipes flagged and remembered what Ian Gray had said about Louise's eating disorder. Was she the one who had marked them? 
Pineapple pudding and oyster soup were expected, but the lentil dal took me by surprise. I thought Indian cooking was more of a modern thing. After a few minutes, I found a short story and settled down to read. It was just what I needed. And when my eyes began to flutter, I put the book on my bedside locker and climbed out of bed to close the shutters before turning off the light. I was drifting off when I heard voices from outside, the islanders going back to their boats, I presumed, but they faded quickly and I turned onto my side and fell asleep. An hour later, I woke to the sound of some kind of large vehicle on the drive and a beeping noise like a lorry reversing. A delivery for the wedding, I thought sleepily. It didn't last long and I fell back asleep. A while later, I woke again this time with a jolt. It felt as if I'd been asleep only minutes, but when I checked my watch, it was 3 a.m. My heart was racing. What had woken me? A noise again? But no, the house was quiet, and outside there was nothing but the soft sound of the waves. A bad dream? I couldn't remember. With increasing disquiet, I knew what was wrong there was someone in the room with me. Hands trembling, I flicked on the light and my eyes darted fearfully around from wardrobe to the window to the hand basin. There was no one there, but there was something. I was sure of it, a presence, a sort of thickening in the air. I shook myself. I could see the entire room and there was no one there. What was wrong with me? I had no belief in ghosts. I took a deep breath and a sip from my glass of water and waited for my heart rate to slow down. After a few minutes, I forced myself to turn off the light, lie down and close my eyes. Suddenly, I felt breath on my face and something at my neck like cold hands. I coughed and sat up, waving my arms wildly, hitting nothing but thin air. The floor creaked and I froze. Someone was walking across my bedroom. That's it. <laughs> Thank you so much for that reading. I really enjoyed it. In several reviews, you've been described as an Irish Agatha Christie. That seems to come up a lot. And um, John Connolly has said of your work that Tana French has some serious competition. I think, well, first of all, I think John Connolly has been very kind to me. And I think that's a very, very kind comparison comparing me to Tana French. I would be a massive fan of Tana French's. Um, so I was thrilled about that, but I'm not sure how much competition I am really uh, to her. But um, John has been very kind about my books. Um, in terms of the Agatha Christie comparison, um, I think that any writer who writes relatively traditional mysteries um, is going to be compared to Agatha Christie. And, and mine are very much in that almost golden age style of writing crime fiction. Um, the, in my books, you can be guaranteed uh, not to be exposed to uh, very graphic violence. Uh, you can be guaranteed that there will be a body fairly close to the beginning of the book. Uh, there is an amateur sleuth. Uh, there will be a limited cast of suspects and there will be a solution and justice will be served at the end. So I suppose 
when those ingredients are present, um, then there's there's going to be an inevitable comparison uh, with Agatha Christie. But um, I, I love Agatha Christie. I mean, I grew up reading Agatha Christie. So anytime anybody compares me to Agatha Christie, I'm thrilled. Um, but I think her strength has always been her plots. Um, and But also her characterization. I, I think, you know, she's often criticised for um her her characters being tropes um but uh i think there's a universality to to a lot of her characters you know the kind of the bore of a colonel uh, i mean you're going to meet that guy in a bar in ireland he won't be wearing medals on his uh blazer but he's just as capable of you know boring the pants off you and telling you his old war stories so so um so I suppose, in short, I'd be I'm thrilled anytime I'm compared to uh, Agatha Christie, and Anne Cleves. So Anne Cleves is an amazing crime writer. I, I have a theory about these uh, writers, Irish crime writers, especially uh, the women, um, that maybe we were brought up to be very good girls, and so we're drawn towards a little bit of evil. Mm. Uh, I don't know whether that's the case, but why do you think there has been such a surge in... Um, well, I think there are probably two points there. One is why there has been a surge in Irish crime writing, in female Irish crime writing. I think that women have been... Expectations are there that, that women behave in a certain way and they are drawn to darkness. So now they're permitted to write these kind of books. And so they are writing these kind of books and nobody's telling them they can't. Um, but also, I think women have always understood fear. Um, and I think women write fear incredibly well. And I think they write it better than men generally. I think men experience fear in a different way. Um, and I think um, as as... As little girls and as teenagers, we are always told, don't walk home on your own at night. Um, don't go to that part of town on your own. Um, I'll pick you up. Uh, I don't want you standing there outside that shop, disco, whatever, on your own. So you are constantly taught uh, to be afraid and that you should be afraid. Uh, and that that's necessary to your survival and your safety, that you feel fear. So little girls are told that they should be afraid. All women experience fear. Uh, some of them experience it in a, in a more real and more visceral way, but we, we all experience fear. My name is Susan Lanigan and I'm reading from my World War I novel, White Feathers. Viscount Farn had written to tell Sybil that he wanted a divorce. Her licentious behaviour, abuse of his finances and refusal to perform the services benefiting a Viscount's wife, whatever that meant, had decided him. Since you have effectively deserted me for a bit of wartime spills and thrills, he wrote, I cannot serve you papers. It would be too dangerous for my lawyers to chase after you, but I have instructed my man Markham to have our London property cleared of all your things. It was a poorly written screed, lots of ink everywhere. Clive liked writing even less than she did, that was for sure. 
But divorce was very hard for a woman to shake off. And I say, it's just behaviour. She hadn't put anything between her legs apart from the saddle of Roma's bloody motorbike. Perhaps that was what Clive was talking about. No great loss, she murmured aloud, just as the vehicle came to yet another shuddering halt. What now? Roma asked Stevens, not hiding her irritation. What now? As I have to point Percy at the porcelain, he said, closing the van door and disappearing around the side. Vulgar fellow, Sybil muttered. Sybil, Roma said, her eyes suddenly beseeching. Do you think? They were interrupted by a wee, then a dull thud and a sudden uprising of light on the road ahead. Carts, vans and horses scattered, people dashed about like ants. Instinctively, Sybil grabbed Roma and flattened them both against the van seat, Roma grunting as her tailbone hit the gearbox. After a few seconds, Sybil cautiously lifted her head. Another one, cried Roma beneath her, as a high note tore through the sky, descending in pitch. So pretty, those shells, even when they were rending living things apart. And how warm Roma's body beneath her, each thigh so solid, the sensation of breast meeting breast. And then another shell right next to them, an explosion sucking all the air and sound, abrupt as a full stop. Where the hell is Stevens? Sybil wondered. I hope that last one didn't get him. Do you really care? Roma was still beneath her, still warm, her breath ticking Sybil's neck. Her eyes were a pure colour like that river in Switzerland before it meets the glacial stream near Lake Geneva. Sybil sighed and pulled herself up until she was kneeling on the seat. I'd better go see he's all right. Old Fritz seems to have taken a break for the moment. She did not see immediately, and then she did. He, Major Arnold Stevens, was lying flat on his back several yards away from the van, his chest blown open by the shell, ragged ends of ribcage sticking up, a black space where his internal organs had been blown out, half the intestines remaining, half in a bloody mess around him. The entirety of his innards, from neck to groin, open to public view, his face just about left intact, but part of his left jawbone had gone. Sybil had never before seen the kind of injuries from which there could definitely be no recovery. She struggled not to be sick. Her teeth were chattering in her head. I'm not a society girl, she addressed the mangled corpse somewhat hysterically. I'm going to be divorced, so now you know. She called for Roman to fetch a blanket or a covering of some sort. She did not try to shield the state of the man. Roma flinched only very briefly, a spasm of muscle at the corner of her mouth. Together, they dragged Stephen's body off the road and laid it in the ditch and covered his face. We'll tell them at base, Roma said, once we finish our mission. It began to rain, gentle drops pattering on the ground, then firmer. With the runnels of water spinning into the ditch, Sybil felt her own will to move drain away. I don't know if I can do it, Romy, she said, trembling. Of course you can, Roma held out her hand. Come. Sybil took it, but didn't move. She was crying hard. Roma stepped towards her, still holding her hand. I just found out today, Clive's divorcing me. And now this poor, boring man, dead like that when we were only speaking to him a minute ago. And this place is so muddy, and everyone's so rude. I shouldn't have come here. I hate the French. I hate the bloody French. Oh, Roma, what am I going to do? In an instant, Roma had her arms around Sybil's neck. And before she could think twice about it, Sybil kissed her. She tasted of salt and blood and the bit of fries, chocolate, Nevins had been given her that morning in Dunkirk. It was not a long kiss, but there was a flash of tongue, enough to seal intent. The rain fell on Sybil's jacket and shoulders, and she pulled Roma in close for a long moment. I'll tell you what you're going to do, Roma's voice was, for once, ever so slightly shaky. You're going to get back in that van, and you're going to drive us to Newport. Those are Major Stephen's orders. Now that he is dead, we must fulfil them. I just, Sybil could hardly speak properly for some happiness and fear. What about the shells? 
For God's sake, Roman said, kissing her again. Just drive, Sybil. My name is Mona Lynch, and I'm going to read a special blend. On Friday, June 24th, 1957, Teresa left her home in Cork on the Innisfallen. Tearful, she said goodbye to her mother on Penrose Quay. She experienced a niggling sense of excitement as she passed the enchanting facade of Blackrock Castle. This sense of excitement of a new world unfolding stayed with her as she arrived at her married sister's suburban home outside London. Next morning she was up bright and early and decided to go into London to look for a job. Finding a friendly cafe and armed with a cup of coffee, a newspaper and a barrel, she tackled the situation's vacant column. She ringed two likely ones and headed off to the nearest telephone. What luck with her very first call. They must be desperate. They asked her if she could start the following Monday. She was now an employee of Horniman's Tea Company, Shepherdess Walk, London. They imported and blended teas. They would pay her £7 per week. On arrival, she found the office large and airy, the staff friendly and helpful. When she'd been there a few days, she was asked to take a document into the next room and give it to Mr Cameron, the head tea taster. Teresa couldn't believe her eyes. The room was very large, with a long table running the full length of it. This table had white bowls placed at intervals along the edge, with a cup beside each bowl. There were Indian men in white suits and ladies in beautiful silk saris. They dipped teaspoons daintily into the cups, then rolled the liquid around their tongues before spitting it with precise aim into the bowls. Teresa was disgusted. She could still hear her mother's voice chastising her, saying, Ladies don't spit. Well, these ones did. These, she discovered, were the tea tasters. She often had to visit this room and eventually got quite used to the scene, but found it amazing that at the tea break they would come into her office where the tea tro trolley was parked and say they were gasping for a cup of tea. <laughs> News must have spread that there was a new girl in the office who was Irish. While working busily one afternoon, she felt someone standing over her. He was Indian, dark-skinned, deep brown eyes. He wore a white suit and smiled radiantly at her, telling her he was educated by the Irish Christian brothers in Calcutta. He said it in the same way someone at home would say, I'm your first cousin. He was a taster. His name was Peter. He visited her every day after that. Eventually, he asked her out on a date. They made an appointment outside a cinema in the West End. Arriving at the appointed time, Theresa was very touched when he handed her a package. It contained a beautiful pair of tailored white gloves, which she loved. This was 1957, when large skirts, pushed out by stiffened underskirts and worn with crisp white gloves, were all the rage. She'd be a long time waiting for one of her boyfriends at home to give her such a present. They went out together regularly after that, visiting the theatre, taking in shows like the long-running mousetrap and going on picnics in the various parks around London on weekends. His behaviour towards her was very polite. He took her hand as they walked together on their first date, but they'd been out for a few times before he kissed her goodnight. 
Gradually, they relaxed in each other's company and enjoyed as much intimacy as was the norm in 1957. Teresa was beginning to wonder, should she tell her family about him? She felt they were getting closer and their relationship was maybe on the road to something more permanent. It was six months now since she had started in the company and Peter came by her desk to ask her if she would meet him at the Trocadero restaurant in Soho for dinner on the following Friday night. She felt it was a special occasion and dressed very carefully. As he pulled out her chair to help her get seated at the restaurant, Teresa asked, what are we celebrating? Peter didn't answer her. He just sat down. She knew from his face something was very wrong. What is it, Peter? she asked. I cannot tell you without breaking my heart, he whispered. She loved his use of the English language. Teresa put out her hand to cover his in encouragement. You can tell me anything, Peter, she said. My family has arranged my marriage, he said. A girl from our village has been chosen for me. I am to travel home to Calcutta next week. The wedding will take place in two weeks. Teresa couldn't believe her ears. It is the custom where I come from, he said, looking at her with his limpid brown eyes. Teresa was speechless with shock which quickly turned into a red, burning rage. Well, this is the custom where I come from, she said, jumping up and upending her bowl of chicken curry over his head. <laughs> she watched with satisfaction as it dribbled down his shoulders and over his white suit. Grabbing her bag, she crossed the road, was swallowed up in the maw of the nearest tube station. Next morning, she made her way to her favorite coffee shop. Armed with a cup of coffee, a barrel, and a newspaper, she studied the situation's vacant column. My name is Elaine Desmond, and this is an excerpt from a short story called Metamorphoses. That was it then. There could be no reprieve. It was over. Stopped with the finality of a defective watch. You cross the street barely aware of the frantic hooting of auto rickshaws all around you. The yellow vehicles honked like overexcited geese, their drivers making frenzied signals with their arms and swerving on three wheels to avoid you. Nobody noticed as you joined the throbbing mass of bodies at the side of the road. Traders with deadened eyes lolled in the dusty heat behind stalls displaying spices and fruits. The cloying aroma of their wares mingled with that of human defecation to produce an acrid, simultaneously sweet and repugnant scent. It stuck like glue to the back of your throat, so thick you could almost taste it. You watched as chickens crowded together in small cages screeched in panic-stricken squawks, attempting to find space to flap restricted wings. They'd become abruptly aware of their fate, obliged to look on as the chosen ones had their necks unceremoniously chopped off in front of waiting customers. The scent of blood was heavy, added substance to the other smells rather than drowning them out. 
Women in cheap saris, their colours gaudy and unnatural in the bright sunlight, shrieked at half-starved, mange-ridden dogs. The women's faces were creased like unironed garments from sun and struggle. Large, round nose rings gave them the semblance of aggravated bulls and added to their tough, uncompromising stance. Scram, they screamed in Hindi, their voices sandpaper harsh. They glanced at you with the same incensed anger they bestowed upon the dogs, like you too were astray, unwanted, desperate. You crossed to a stall where an array of coloured powders was displayed in preparation for Holi, the festival of colours, an incoherent blending of shades, tones and hues flung together randomly. No dualities or finite states, no endings or beginnings, no boundaries, no loss. Behind the stall, Ahmed, your childhood friend, was half asleep in the afternoon sunshine. The pockmarked skin on his face, still scarred from teenage acne, was becoming darker. His sharp, restless eyes widened when he saw you. Brother, he said. He stood quickly, his thin frame agile. What is it? Something is wrong. You shook your head, trying to keep your eyes from watering. It's Constance. He was before you now, and you were aware of his intense concern. She's gone. I've just come from the hospital. Ahmed spread his arms. His body was covered in a long white thobe, and the pose was reminiscent of Christ on the crucifix. For a moment, you allowed yourself to be enfolded in his embrace. He smelled of sweat and soap. Eventually, you pulled back. What happened? You shrugged. She just, she passed away, in her chair. I was there, again the tears. You bowed your head, sought to recover yourself. I was trying to help. Meeting his eyes, you found yourself about to confess, but you stopped, shook your head again. We called for an ambulance, but she was already dead. You did all you could, brother. She's at peace, in pain no longer. Now we are the ones who must bear the burden. You nodded. I know. Where will you go? You looked away over his shoulder, as if trying to see into a future that no longer made sense. That I must work out. As of right now, I've no idea. Of course, of course, this is a big change, a very big change. You must take time. He placed his hand on your shoulder. But remember, Allah only gives us what we are strong enough to bear. This is God's will. God's will. You set off again, the words ringing like a death knell in your mind. All around, life struggled to recreate itself, push forward, spread out fill gaps, like an ungovernable weed that somehow always found its way back. Fiction at the Friary and on Campus was presented by Madeleine Darcy and Danielle McLaughlin. 
Location Introductions by J.P. Quinn Produced by Kieran Hurley for UCC 98.3 FM This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.